The following program may contain language that is explicit, and by explicit, I mean implicitly naughty words. It's Wednesday, July 15th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hey, news media, listen to me. 24-hour hold on all Ruth Bader Ginsburg health updates, okay? Because last night around 6 p.m. Eastern, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in the hospital. Just in, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg hospitalized her new health scare. Lester Holt's NBC colleague Chuck Todd added some details. We are following some breaking news that I told you about before the break. We have just learned that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is recovering from a medical procedure, is expected to be in the hospital for the next few days. She was taken to the hospital last night after experiencing fever and chills. And 22 hours after that initial announcement, Ginsburg out. Did we need 22 hours of our own fever and chills? That less than a leap day of fretting, important to everyone, was the public interest served by having the phrase, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, quote, clean out a bile duct stent in close proximity within any of our brains, the cleanliness or lack thereof of any of the ducts, arteries, sinews, tubes, or veins within an 87-year-old jurist seems very, very much to be between her and her doctor, perhaps her lord. I understand the interest. I understand the concern. But may I suggest a different mindset? even among those so very appreciative of this major author of the notion that a woman's body belongs to that particular woman. You know what I'm going to say that the mindset should be, right? I just said it. Sure, reporting on Supreme Court health, exceptions for if you're found dead in your bed on a hunting trip, basically any Supreme Court justice or vice president involved in any way in a death or a shooting or even a deep disturbance in the quail community on a hunting trip, that does need to be reported. I also am noting, I think, with the lack of anything coherent coming out of the White House, I am noting an interest in other federal updates. Senate races, ex-Auburn coach beats ex-Attorney General. Mm. There's more interest in the health of other Supreme Court justices. Ginsburg's ducts, John Roberts should have. Actually, Roberts' concussion, which he was in the hospital for, wasn't from getting whacked in the head, wasn't smacking himself in the head, and I should have ruled against Obamacare kind of way. Poor guy fell on a dock in Maine after what was described as an a benign idiopathic seizure. Well, there's a phrase that goes from hopeful to not in a hurry. I don't know. Maybe all this obsession with other people who live and work in Washington or could is because our dopey, dopey president is just full of beans. Oh, don't get me wrong. He's also full of shit. But at this particular, he's a complete liar. But at this particular point, he is obsessed with beans after the CEO of Goya said something nice about him. So now he and his family members are posing all over social media with Goya brand products. Ivanka treats her beans with awe and reverence, bordering on the religious. And by that, I mean, she struck the same unnatural pose with a can of beans as the president did with a Bible a few weeks back. Another Trump family photo op that's really working out for them. Did you see, I mean, did you see the picture of Ivanka Trump holding those beans? She was exactly like a model from The Price is Right, asking you to guess the price on the display floor. Okay, here's the new question for the Trump administration. In a new Quinnipiac poll, by how much does President Trump trail Joe Biden nationally? 
Um, uh, what's that? Oh, three. I'll go with three points. Is that right? Well, let's see how much you're off by. Oh, no. It's more than Hillary's margin of victory? Wait, it's more than Obama v. Romney? More than Obama-McCain? Well, it's a bigger margin than FDR won by after the U.S. won the Battle of Normandy? What? Yes, he's 15 points down in that poll. It's no wonder we're looking for some other news, but it's still no good that we're reporting out late octogenarian hospital stays in order to get our fix of federal intrigue. On the show today, I spiel about an interview Donald Trump did agree to. It also was not good. But first, Curtis Sittenfeld returns. She is here to talk about her book, Rodham, a fictionalized account of the life of Hillary Rodham non-Clinton. That's up next. Curtis Sittenfeld is here. She joined me yesterday and we talked about her new book, Rodham, about Hillary Clinton or Hillary Rodham, if she was never Hillary Rodham Clinton. So there are two critiques in the book. There are a bunch, but the ones I want to talk about with Curtis Sittenfeld are these. One, the very idea of the book is just teasing out what would happen if she never married Bill Clinton. I think you can say fairly, and she does, that her life would be very different, and maybe the decision to marry Bill necessarily compromised her. But then in the novel, and I won't give away the specifics, five pages from the end, the Hillary of the book does something bold and daring and off script and throws caution into the wind in an important way. And it redounds very much to her benefit in the book. And so I asked Curtis Sittenfeld if she agreed that the criticism that Hillary Clinton has gotten her life by being too on script, is that more or less a fair criticism? I think it's legitimate enough to explore, although actually on this subject, my sympathy is with the real Hillary because I feel like she's really damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. And in terms of like showing her quote unquote real self, I feel like she talks about in the Hulu documentary when she was coming of age professionally that it was appropriate to be guarded and, you know, like not let it all hang out. And then you, you fast forward 35 or 40 years and there is this expectation of, that you're going to be sort of showing your authenticity all over social media, which, I mean, <laughs> I guess we can set aside the issue of like, in some ways, showing your authenticity on social media is almost an oxymoron unto itself. But I feel like, and I'm, you know, I'm a generation younger than she is, but I don't, I, I think that if you are likely to be criticized for being perhaps overly professional, or you're likely to be criticized for being insufficiently professional, I too would err on the side of overly professional if I were running for public office. So yeah, so I don't, and, and yeah. Oh, I, I agree with that. But here's, here's the, the, one of the interesting things that I thought about, that in the book, she does a little bit of letting it all hang out or speaking a little bit from the heart and maybe giving an incautious answer. And it helps her. Think about this, as I'm sure you have. In the, the, the book, Hillary, she becomes a, uh, a person of prominence, a person who is scrutinized 
And she has a lot of attention paid to her, just like the real life Hillary for different reasons. Think about how much. So, in fact, in the book, you get the impression that you would you would you might believe in the book. She becomes something like the most scrutinized woman in the world. Okay, in real life, her level of scrutiny was what? 10 times that, 20 times that, because for everything else that she was in the book, she also was this first lady. She also was this lightning rod. And she also had to answer for everything that Bill Clinton had to answer for. So maybe in the book, you're not exactly saying that if Hillary was, would just be honest, uh, she'd have delivered herself from some of the criticism. Maybe you're also pointing out that it's so much harder for the real Hillary to get past those guardrails that she has had to put up just because what her life has really been like. I I agree completely with everything you're saying. I mean, and even to be specific, like, do you remember there was that moment in the 2008 campaign when I, I, I might be getting this, like the specifics slightly wrong, but it was like someone asked her on the campaign trail like essentially if it was difficult for her and I think like her eyes filled with tears and then there was yes. all this conversation about like, was she really crying? Was she fake crying? Right. Was she, this, was, then, this was, this was when she was predicted to lose the New Hampshire primary and she had this emotional moment of welling up. And in fact, it shocked the polls. She won that race. People retroactively credited that moment of human emotion and some people uh, gainsayed it. But it is so telling that the thing that almost made that the race that she won was that one moment of her eyes welling up after that question. Yeah. But here's the thing. I think I think everything you're saying, which, I, you know, obviously you can summon with much greater clarity than I can, is I think that says so much more about like voters and cynicism and media and news cycles than it does about Hillary. Like that's a bonkers story, really, when you start to unpack it. And and like the idea that she, she won New Hampshire because her eyes welled up with tears and it showed she's human. Okay, like yeah. one, she is indisputably human. That's like right. two, she 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 won New Hampshire because of like this, you know like career that sort of preceded that for like 25 years. Like there's something so weird, which I know you are not <laughs> single-handedly responsible for, but there is something so weird about the way we talk about all of this. And like, and something that I, I believe this is in um, what happened, her, her 2017 sort of memoir recounting of, of the election um, that she talks about, you know, people sort of, you know, like she's always in encouraged to show that she's human, but it's actually strangely difficult to prove that you are something you are, which I I really like sympathize with that. Where like sometimes I, I'm like telling the truth, but I think to myself like 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 I almost am glad when if I, like the fact that I'm telling the truth is like affirmed by a third party or or like. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's such a weird thing that we ask, I would say not just of her, but of, of I mean, of politicians and particularly of female, female politicians. So throughout this book, we're inside Hillary's mind and she often lays on us observations about the world and man and wo women dynamics, gender dynamics and speaking and perception. And 
quite convincingly, you'd think Hillary would have these thoughts. They're incredibly insightful and adroit. At one point, she says something that I will never forget, which is uh, a, a little useful tip for me for the rest of my life is if you have pessimistic news and optimistic news, if you end with the pessimistic, that's all that people will come away from. But if you end with the optimism, it will go down much better. I said to myself, that is true. That is insightful. <laughs> so here's my question. I don't, when you were writing this book, was it um, a joy, a thrill to be able to express in your character what would be the height of your own insight about these things that you didn't have to say, well, I don't think Hillary would ever realize that or say it? I, I feel like it's, writing fiction is such a strange thing where um, like on a good day, it's almost like, you know, entering like a fugue state or something where like, I don't like, it's, it's almost just writing stuff that's been influenced by a lot of different, you know, it could have been influenced by reading Hillary's books by reading books like Rebecca Traster's good and mad. It could have been influenced by like a conversation I had with, you know, various professional women I know of different ages. It could have come from my own imagination. And it's, there's something I have always felt like writing a novel is sort of like a bird building a nest and you'll sort of shamelessly take whatever you can from wherever just to, to sort of serve your larger purpose. And so I think in the moment of writing, like there is something irreducible about fiction. And so it's, it's not like trying to make a non-fictional argument in an essay. It's really actually, I think the, the number one objective for me is always creating a convincing, believable scene. And then it's kind of a bonus if I can add on some observation about gender that, that feels organic, because if it doesn't feel organic, then, then it will feel like propaganda or like, like it belongs in an op-ed. Is writing uh, this kind of novel uh, where you embody a real character, does the fact that it takes a large part of the novelist task of character development a little bit off the plate and also in a book like this, which follows the contours of political races, it does take some of the plotting aspects away. Just like if you're, if you're writing a murder trial, the structure is there for you. Does that free you up to really explore or concentrate on dialogue and scenes? Is that um, freeing at all is my question. Oh, it's funny because I think I think it might be like the opposite of freeing. Where, like, I felt really conscious of. So I think this is not too much of a spoiler to say that my my Hillary or fictional Hillary, you know, goes into politics, and I really wanted to get the political details right. And like, whether it's you know she's in a van riding to an event, or she's you know having an off the record conversation with a journalist, or or an on the record conversation with a journalist. Like, I wouldn't. I mean, I think that my goal in all of my fiction is um, if somebody has specific knowledge of a subject, and that subject is in my book, I want the person to not to think like this is laughable, and I know that like you know, Curtis just sits in her house in Minnesota all the time, like doesn't do anything that this book describes. Like, I want them to think, how did Curtis know that? Like, you know, this seems so real. And um, so, so I definitely felt pressure to get 
details, which are sort of publicly verifiable, in some cases, correct. And, and even though, you know, like political campaigns, as you're saying, do have a kind of external structure, I still had to decide what happened. So I would say I found this the most challenging. This is now my sixth novel, and I found it the most challenging of any of them. And and it was also, it was interesting because again, I wrote hundreds of pages before I showed them to anyone. And then when I did start to show them to people, it was very interesting because a lot of people would say, this novel is wild or this novel is mind blowing. And the thing they were almost always referring to was how it blends history and fiction or fact and fiction. And it almost made me retroactively understand why I found it challenging that like I was doing a weird thing that most novels don't do. Right. Yeah. I guess it was like when Zemeckis directed Forrest Gump and the technology was new and the fact that he could trick everyone and you come out of that movie, whatever else you say about Forrest Gump, you're like, oh my God, it was like he was really there watching Kennedy. And if people would have that reaction, you've done something right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you're the first to compare Rodham to Forrest Gump, but perhaps <laughs> not the last. In that, in that very specific way. <laughs> there, are, there are no references to Box of Chocolates in Rodham, I do not believe. Um, here's the last thing I want to get into. I don't know. Do you, you live in America in 2020, so comic books and comic book movies, do you have any relationship to them? Do I have any relationship to do you, comic books? Yeah, like, do you ever read comic books or like know who the heroes are or um probably not unless they existed in my youth. Like I right. um or like I I saw I think this probably isn't what you mean. I saw the first half of the Wonder Woman movie. <laughs> That's wow. <laughs> That's great. Not to brag. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I can't believe you got all high-handed with that one. So <laughs> here's the reason I bring it up. <laughs> I think that mostly they've come to dominate our culture for economic reasons, and there's a lot of downside to it, though I like the good comic book movies. But I've always thought, well, they do serve this like function, this, this I don't know, innate function, essentially like the gods of Greek or Norse myths do in that they are vessels that we can tell our stories. And when we reinvent them as the, the Romans did with the Greeks and shape them a little where this is a means by which storytellers can use these familiar, non-fixed, but recognizable characters to tell us stories. And I think that's what this is doing. And do you think that some mega celebrities or some politicians actually inherently are able to serve that role? Or brag if you want, do you think that it's just something that you managed to pull off because of the quality and execution of this book? I'm I'm very intrigued by this question. So so is the thing that I would be pulling off here like you know like sort of yeah like what's what's the thing that I'd be pulling off? Right. Good. Okay. So if you watched uh, this HBO series, The Watchmen, it takes a familiar comic book, but then flips it a little and updates it. And it's like, oh, and by sneaking in through, not necessarily sneaking, it's respectful of the text, but by using this, these familiar characters and telling a new story, it does something, it's almost like an 
an exponent, a multiplier of what that would be if the material weren't told through the story of familiar people. And I think that that's the way that Stories of the Gods worked too. So my observation is that's how the book Rodham works. And the question is, is there something inherent about either a politician that can do that, a mega celebrity that can do that, or the third possibility is the answer to those two is no. It's just that, you know, you happen to do that in this book. Well, I do. So, so I feel like I was talking to someone about the book and like almost like, somehow the comparison came up of like, if you're giving your dog a vitamin and you wrap it in cheese that like, I mean, there is a part of me and this, this, I, I feel like the opposite of selling the, the book. There's a part of me that's like filled with feminist rage you know, after 2016 or, or, you know, maybe for my entire life since 1975. But, but I think that if I was like, I have written a manifesto about my feminist rage, I think there would be very few takers for that. And if I say, okay, I'm going to create this, this like elaborate plot and there's going to be, and it's going to be sincere. Like it's not, you know, like it's like every scene is meant to be a scene that like feels like real life and has emotional stakes. Um, and so if I, and, and like, there's going to be kissing and, and there's going to be like tears and, and there's going to be, you know, family and romance and long friendships and, you know, political, like high stakes, like, and my feminist rage is also going to be inside there. Like, I think a lot more people will say like, okay, I'm on board. Um, and so, so yeah, I do, I do think that like a story and a novel can be very elastic or very capacious and, you know, people, people who wouldn't maybe even read, like, I like to read like the the memoirs or the autobiographies of female senators or like I'm listening to the audio of Stacey Abrams' new book right now. But there, there are probably people who would not seek out those nonfiction explicit conversations about politics who would read Rodham. The name of the book is Rodham. The author is Curtis Sittenfeld. And it was a lot of fun to read. And it was a lot of fun to talk to Curtis. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you so much. This was super fun. And now the spiel. Yesterday, Donald Trump was interviewed by CBS's Catherine Herridge at the White House. It was a fast-paced interview, but not hard-hitting. Rapid-fire volleys softly thudding into the sloshy marsh that is Donald Trump's brain. It wasn't rat-a-tat. It wasn't even bing, 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 bing. You know you're not going to get anything thoughtful, insightful, possibly even true when you talk to the president. But that doesn't mean you can't get something revealing. And when asked about black deaths at the hands of police, Trump was, to some extent, revealing. Let's talk about George Floyd. You said George Floyd's death was a terrible thing. Terrible. Why are African Americans still dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country? And so are white people. So are white people. What a terrible question to ask. So are white people. More white people, by the way. More white people. Actually, that was a terrible answer to give. Now, of course, he's not wrong. It's just that it's misleading to the point of being useless to say that more white people are killed by police, which is why the interviewer needs to say, 
Well, yeah, of course, in absolute numbers, but the country's 60 percent white and about 14 percent black. And black people, according to the Washington Post database, are 2.8 times as likely as a white person to be killed by a police officer. That is the concern. There are a couple ways you could phrase what would be the follow-up. You could use the word disproportionately. You can get a little tricky and say, okay, yes, Mr. President, but in terms of their percentage representation in the population, are you saying that it's fair and just that black people are almost three times as likely to get killed by a police officer as a white person? Are you saying that's entirely on the black population? Let's hear what Catherine Herridge did say. More white people. Is phase two of the trade talks with China dead? Nothing, nothing. There was no follow-up. Though after the segment, Herridge did note. And we looked into the president's claims about law enforcement deaths. Researchers suggest that black people are about three times more likely to be killed by police. But the overall number of white people killed is higher because whites represent a larger percentage of the population, Nora. Well, that's some crackerjack research, but shouldn't you have had it at your fingertips or in your brain during the conversation? Furthermore, today, Herridge retweeted a CBS This Morning tweet because they played some of the interview on CBS This Morning. In a CBS News exclusive interview, President Trump insisted to CBS Herridge that his coronavirus response is working. He also claimed more white people are killed by police than black Americans. Well, that is one horribly erroneous claim and one actually accurate claim. I don't know what the purpose of highlighting the accurate claim of the president's is. I think the implication might be that it's not accurate, even if it's not. But by doing that and by saying that and by not asking a follow-up, it certainly opens the door to Trump and right-wing media to go out there and say, look at CBS finding fault with an accurate statement. It's just bad journalism not to have followed up That's kind of weird journalism. Let's also note this. Catherine Herridge has been at CBS for less than a year. For 24 years, she worked at Fox. I could think of many, many CBS reporters who would have done a very good job in interviewing the president. Ed O'Keefe, Margaret Brennan, Gail King, John Dickerson, Major Garrett, to name a few. They would not have botched the needed follow-up question there. I know follow-ups are hard. People like me will nitpick and say everything can be followed up on and press them hard and make them look bad. It's not what I'm saying. I think every so often there is one that just calls out for a follow-up. And I think the proof that this is one of those questions is the fact that someone at CBS felt the need to insert the context I just played at the end of the report. Whites are a larger part of the population, Nora. Shows someone in editorial thought it was important to say. Someone thought at least a few seconds of that report needed to be dedicated to that context. White houses often try to shop for the friendliest interviewer within a network. Networks often try not to give in, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they say, look, his conditions are, he wants Catherine or Juan or David. It's better to have that interview on our network than to have no interview at all. Then again, sometimes it's not. In a way, this interview with an interviewer the White House clearly wanted, is the rare piece of political maneuvering that the Trump communications shop did well. And still, for the president, it was a disaster. It's not like he gave good answers that advanced his agenda or informed the public. I mean, Trump doesn't even answer questions well when they are rhetorical questions within his own commercials. 
Who will be there to answer the call when your children aren't safe? I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Donald Trump, there he is, manning the Your Children Aren't Safe hotline. And with that, I think no follow-ups are needed. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader. I was really hoping that I would have lots to say about Barry Weiss, especially after reading her resignation letter. Unfortunately, I spent all my time reading a fawning profile of her in Vanity Fair, and I'm just overwhelmed with warm feelings. By the way, the gist is also produced by Margaret Kelly, who stocked up before the pandemic and now has her parents warning her that her food is going to go bad. She says that her father has been urging her to freeze her eggs, the gist. I try to take copious notes of all the good faith and bad faith arguments out there, and then at the end of the day, this happens. I have pen marks on my boob. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.